My name is Gran, I'm one of the pastors here at Restored Uptown. Uh, if today is your first Sunday here, welcome. It's great to have you here. Why don't we go into a moment of prayer before we start today's message. Lord, we just thank you for today. Just able to get together as your people, to sing and worship you, to pray, to enjoy you, to enjoy each other, to learn and grow together as your people. And we just ask you, Holy Spirit, even now that you would speak to us that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would comfort us, that you would call us to do the things that you have called us to do. So please open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and teach us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really nice to hear the, the sound of a dog collar going in the back there, just that sweet jingle, little Christmas noises in church today. Um, if you are new here, though, we are into part two, as Andy was saying, of our Sermon on the Mount series, going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, the greatest sermon of all time, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, what we did is we started looking at the, the question, who is Jesus? And we worked through Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4, quite a, uh, an undertaking, and we looked at these snapshots of who Matthew shows us Jesus was, as he introduces us to Jesus before he introduces us to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to do today is we're going to carry on right at the end of Matthew 4. We're going to finish that off before we actually get into the sermon. So if you do have a Bible, can you join me in verse 18, Matthew 4, 18? If you don't, it'll come up on the screen next to me. And we're going to read um, these verses together. Matthew chapter 4. It says, As he, as Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of his kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And in Matthew 5, verse 1 to 2, getting closer and closer to the actual Sermon on the Mount, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, dot, dot, dot. Just going to like let you dip your toes into the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to pull back. I promise you we'll try and get into that actual message pretty soon. But what we see in Matthew 4, before we get to Jesus' sermon, is something of who Jesus is and what he did. We see something of the ministry that Jesus had um, everywhere he went. And we see him firstly calling people to himself, calling people to follow him, teaching the scriptures, preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God, healing people of all kinds of sicknesses and illnesses, and setting people free from demonic oppression. That's what Jesus was doing. But there's something else that's going on here at the end of Matthew 4 and beginning of Matthew 5 that I don't want you to miss. 
And I'm not a photographer here. I'm sure some of you guys are really good at this, really good with all the technicality of cameras and how they work. I'm not even going to use the right words this morning. But I know that you can adjust the focus on a camera so that if something is in the foreground, something is the subject, something is the thing that you are focused in on and it's crisp and clear and all of that, you can adjust the focus so that that becomes blurred out and what's going on in the background becomes really, really clear. If you're even less technical than me, and you don't even know what a camera is, you can do the same thing with your eyes. I'm sure you've done that. You're looking at something, and then you kind of blink or adjust or squint, and all of a sudden what you're looking at becomes blurred out, and what's going on in the background becomes really clear. That's actually what I want to do here for a second this morning as we look at these verses, because we can miss something that's going on in the background, something that's not the action or the subject of what's going on, but something that's going on in the background that is really, really important. And what I want to kind of adjust focus for you on this morning as we look at this passage is the fact that Jesus, as he's doing all of these things, does them in a certain context. He's just called a group of men to follow him his small group of followers that he calls his disciples. And this becomes so key for what's going on in this passage today. But what's so key in the whole Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to be his disciples, what it looks like to be his followers. And here at the end of Matthew 4, we see he calls these guys, Peter and Andrew and James and John and there's others too. And he calls them to be his disciples. And then what does he do? He spends time with them. He gives them purpose. He sets them an example of what it looks like to live out the way of his kingdom. He works with them on the stuff he's doing, and everywhere that he goes, they go with him. And then right at the beginning of Matthew 5, we read this, verse 1 and 2. When he saw the crowds, because there are thousands of people swarming around Jesus, wanting a moment with him, a touch from him to hear his words. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying... And it's almost like this passage, just before we get into the sermon, is an introduction to Jesus' ministry philosophy. We see this passage bookended, his call of people to be disciples, and then speaking to the disciples. There's a the huge crowd of people that all have mixed reasons and motives for being there, listening to Jesus, being around Jesus. But then there's his core, the, the 12, the disciples, his followers, the ones that he's pouring into and investing into that are sitting around him and listening to his words. And what we're going to do over the next three or so months as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is we're going to listen to the message what Jesus preached, his teaching to us, how we actually live out this thing, how we, how we really follow him as disciples. But what we see here in Matthew 4 is not the message, but the method. We see Jesus' strategy for changing the world. Jesus' strategy is calling a few people to himself and then investing into them for the sake of what he is wanting to do. Matthew 4, verse 18 to 20. Let's just go over this one more time. As he, as Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. Always a confusing thing, the double name thing in the Bible. It is what it is. We see Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That was their job. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And what we see here is Jesus comes into a city like San Diego, and he's going for a walk along the beachfront. You know, he's right there by the sea, and he bumps into a few people like you and I, and he preaches the gospel to them and then says, come and follow me. And they drop everything. They leave their livelihood, they leave their family behind, and they follow Jesus wherever he might take them. 
And I guess right up front, before we even get into the topic today, I want to ask you this question. Have you responded to the call of Jesus to follow him? Because that's the call that's going out. Come and follow me. Have you responded to that call to follow Jesus? And are you a disciple of Jesus? Or if you're not, if you are here today and you're honest with yourself, you're like, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. My question then is, who are you a disciple of? Who are you following? Who's leading you? What direction are you headed in? Who are you becoming? Because whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we are all following someone. We're all a disciple of someone. So who are you a disciple of this morning? Point one. I just want to go through two very simple ideas today. What is a disciple? And then we'll see what point two is in just a minute. What does it mean to be a disciple? Let's start with two very simple definitions. Dallas Willard, one of the kind of discipleship legends, he says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Isn't that cool? Straightforward. John Marcoma kind of contemporizes this a little bit, and he says, discipleship to Jesus is about one simple question. If Jesus were me, if he lived in my city, had my job, my education, made my salary, had my family, how would he live? Very simple. Disciple is actually the primary word in the Bible for Christians. And some of you might be like, hey, Grant, I'm not a preacher, but that doesn't sound right. Surely Christian would be the primary word. But shockingly, Christian only pops up in the New Testament three times. The word disciple shows up 269 times to describe followers of Jesus, the people of God, which means this is key to how we see ourselves and what we're called to do. You might be here and go, I'm a Christian, but ah, like I don't know about that. Like that's Navy SEAL, halo wearing, like really serious hardcore Christian. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't differentiate. If you call yourself a Christian here today, you are a disciple. The question is, are you really following him or not? And really this idea of discipleship is key to understanding who we are, what we are, what we're doing together as a church. And in Jesus' day, the people with disciples were called rabbis or teachers. And Jesus was a rabbi. That is what he did. And these rabbis were big deals. In some circles, pastors are a big deal these days. In some circles, they're not. But uh, yeah, you can make your decision about how we land. But um, <laughs> yeah, you guys have seen preachers and sneakers and some of the weird websites. There's some terrible pastor stuff going on right now. But in Jesus' day, without like... Yeah, getting more into that. Some of these rabbis were huge celebrities. They, they were big deals. They were like rock stars in Jesus' day. And everyone wanted to learn from them, be around them, follow them. People wanted to become rabbis. Parents wanted their kids to become rabbis when they grew up. I don't know any parents in the room are like, oh, I just hope my son, my daughter starts working for the church when they get up. But actually, that's what we saw. In Jesus' day, parents were desperate for their kids to go that route. And if you were chosen by a rabbi to follow them, this would be like getting into your university of choice, like scholarship paid for. You can go, it's an easy ride. Or like an amazing paid internship or job at your company of choice. Google, Tesla, whatever you're into, this was what was going on. And in his book, uh, All Things New, a writer named Pete Hughes talks about what is going on in Matthew 4, the, the context of discipleship that we don't always understand living in 2022 in San Diego. And he writes this, come follow me. These three words would have been totally life-changing. And to understand why, we need to kind of look at the educational system of first century Judaism. The first stage of education, what we back home would call primary school, I don't even know what you guys would call it. Elementary, there we go. So elementary for them uh, would have been called Bet Sefer, the house of the book. 
And at Beth Sefer, children would learn to read and write by immersing themselves in the Torah so that the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, would become familiar to them. And in fact, most of them would have memorized all five of those books by the time that they finished. So I don't know how you're doing at your Bible memorization, but these kids were crushing. First five books of the Bible put to memory inside of them. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the vast majority of children would kind of drop off after that and would just learn the family trade and get involved in the family business and go on from there. But for the best of the best, they would go on to level two. What do you guys call that here? middle school come on middle school was called Bet Talmud the house of learning and at this stage of their education alongside they learned the family trade just in case they didn't go all the way and become a rabbi at this point they were learning the rest of the scriptures David Cho giving me some really good eyebrows over there I appreciate that <laughs> I will name and shame you if you do that kind of thing to me <laughs> But basically they come and they go from, they've gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now they're going Joshua to Malachi. Some of them are memorizing all of that. The rest of them are getting big chunks of scripture inside of them, as well as learning other parts of their faith and what it would look like to be a rabbi. At the end of that time, most people are going to drop out and go and work in the family business. And some people go on to level three. And what they would do is they would approach a rabbi and they would say, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? Can I learn from you? And then the rabbi would sit down with them and absolutely grill them, ask them really hard questions, their opinions about different things, and try and weed out the cream of the crop, the best of the best from everyone else. And if you weren't the best of the best chosen by a rabbi to come and be their disciple, what would happen is they'd say, hey, just no shame in this. Go work in your family business and pray that when you have children that your children might one day become a rabbi. This was the kind of cultural context going on in that day. Imagine that, like, oh, Grant, you don't have what it takes, but maybe one of your kids could be a rabbi one day. And then those who do pass on hear the words from their rabbi saying, come, follow me. They've been accepted. They've been invited to train with them. And for them, this would have been such a proud moment for the family. Their parents would have been absolutely thrilled. This is the highest of callings, the privilege of privileges, what everyone wanted. And their community would send them out to go and follow their rabbi, saying this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's kind of a weird thing to say nowadays, like may you be covered in the dust of your pastor. That would be like on a blog, pastoral abuse. It sounds terrible. But really what was going on is they were saying, may you be covered in the teachings, character, and practices of your rabbi. And even more than that, would you be so close to them, learning from them, that even their dust would get on you? That was kind of the, the prestige they held the teachers of that day in. And what would happen is this discipleship journey would look like them being called to be with their rabbi, become like their rabbi, and do what their rabbi did. Which means that as we read Matthew chapter 4, Peter... Andrew, James, and John did not get chosen. <laughs> they didn't make the cut. None of those four made it through those three levels. Like, we don't get into the detail of when they finished school, <laughs> what point of the journey they were told, hey, just go home and pray. Maybe one of your kids can be a rabbi one day. But they're all working in the family business. They're all fishermen. They're all doing the job that their families would have done in the past. And we have this incredible moment where Jesus, the rabbi, comes up to them these people who have failed, who have, who have not made the cut, and says, come follow me. Come follow me. Their parents would have been so proud. <laughs> what? We never thought you would get a second chance at this, but you have. They would have been so uh, proud of that. And what we see is that they have been chosen by grace, not by merit. 
Jesus has chosen these four, not because of what they've done, not because they're impressive, not because of their qualifications. In fact, they are not qualified. But Jesus, by grace, calls them and says, follow me and become my disciple, and I'm going to teach you and train you and then send you out to do what I do in the world. And what we see in Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus is doing the same thing with you and I. Whether you cut it or not, whether you're the best of the best, the cream of the crop or not, Jesus' invitation to every single one of us in this room today is come and follow me. Come and follow me. You're invited. By grace, you're invited. Even if you're not good enough, you're invited. Even if you failed, you're invited. I'm calling you to come and follow me and be trained by me into the most prestigious place because of what I have got for you. Come and be with me. Come and learn from me. Come and become like me. And then I'm going to send you out to do the work that I have been doing. What a privilege. And for every single one of us today in this room, wherever you are with Jesus in your journey, the question is, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the privilege of this question to follow Jesus and be his disciple? How will you respond? When Jesus calls these four guys and says, come, follow me, Instantly in their minds, this discipleship understanding is engaged. They're like, whoa, the rabbi is inviting me to follow him and inviting me into this life with him where I'm trained and I carry on his work. They knew exactly what he was asking of them. He knew what, they, like, what was required of them, and they knew what they would go into. And for us, maybe we don't always grasp that, but this is very similar in some ways to a kid's game that I believe some of you would have played growing up. You know, in South Africa, we played this game, follow the leader, and one of the kids would be chosen and would go out, and they would do their thing, whatever it would be, and you had to follow and imitate them. And that's the thing, really, at its like, core, discipleship is. Jesus is calling us to follow him. He's calling us to imitate him. He's calling us to do the things he did. And the invitation is, will you follow? Will you imitate? Will you come along for the ride? Now notice in Matthew 4, there is no prerequisite for following Jesus. This would be a shocker for me. Jesus doesn't sit down with each of them before and says, hey, listen, there's an opportunity on the table, but we need to go through these first 10 questions, and we're going to clarify a few things, and then I'll let you know if you're in or out. He doesn't have a questionnaire where he makes them answer, tick the boxes, let him know what they've done, what they haven't, who they are, who they aren't. They don't have to provide character references. Jesus isn't calling their old boss. He's not calling their family. Jesus just calls them. They're not necessarily good enough or deserving enough for this invitation. They don't necessarily live up to Jesus' standards. And like I said, this is a grace call. We already know they haven't earned a spot or deserved a spot on the team. But still, Jesus says, come follow me. And I think this is one of the things I often see with people is the invitation to come follow me is met with a, I'm not ready yet, you know. I don't have it all together. My plan is to follow when I've got everything in place. But Jesus doesn't ask them to do that. He just says, come. Are you willing to come? Are you willing to come as you are? It doesn't mean stay as you are. It doesn't mean I'm not calling you to change. Jesus' call is one to change and be transformed by him along the journey. But the call is to come as you are when you hear the words, when you hear that invitation. And Jesus' words tied to that are repent and believe. We see that in Matthew 4.17. Before the invitation even comes, the, the word is preached, repent and believe. And those can sometimes sound like church words that we don't engage with. But to repent, very simply, is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of life. We change the way that we think in light of Jesus' teaching. We, we respond with our hearts and we begin to follow him and do what he's called us to do. 
when we repent, what we're doing is we're actually turning from things. We're turning from sin, we're turning from other things. And when we believe, we're trusting in Jesus and taking hold of him. When we repent, what we're doing, we're, we're rethinking what we believe and we're stopping believing kind of the false narratives and false beliefs we've had about life and everything. And we're believing in Jesus and his words and what he says is true. We're, we're rethinking and trusting in him. And when we respond to Jesus in this way, what we're doing is we're putting him at the center of our lives. We're saying, you are the thing. You are everything to me. And I want to follow you and live for you and be your disciple. So we're called firstly to be disciples. And secondly, we're called to make disciples. And that's one of the things we see in Matthew 4. This invitation to Jesus, come follow me, is also met with a, another invitation. And I will make you fishers of men. It's a call to purpose. It's a call to mission. Jesus says, actually, we are meant to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If you are a Christian here today, you are a follower of Jesus who is called to help other people follow Jesus. That's part of this whole deal. I think um, Paul the Apostle says it simply and best when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Discipleship is a really relational thing. It involves our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with others. It's a relational thing. I read a book last year that had this example that really stood out to me. Uh, this pastor named Jared uh, Wilson, yeah. He was writing, and the guy who did the foreword to this book, his name was Ray Ortland. Older guy, probably in his 70s, he's just retired. And he speaks and he says, every time I spent time with Ray, I left there with this thought, Ray is a friend of Jesus. And I just, that melted my heart, you know. He just was saying, every time I'm in this guy's presence, I want to know Jesus more. I want to love him more. And I thought of that example. There's probably some people in some of our lives that we're around them and they inspire us and encourage us in a certain way. And Ray, who writes the forward to this book, was someone like that for Jared. He is basically saying, Ray's friendship with Jesus makes me want to be a better friend of Jesus. Ray's following of Jesus has helped me to follow Jesus. Ray's love for Jesus has inspired my love for Jesus. And I'm sitting there in Durban on the east coast of South Africa, I don't know, a year ago when I read this book. And I'm thinking, goodness me, Ray's example and impact on Jared is impacting me sitting in my lounge reading this book and thinking, wow, I can be a friend of Jesus like Ray. Jesus' invitation to all of us is to be his friend. But because of that line that I read, I was freshly encouraged to the same thing. Shell and I were driving yesterday, and I had obviously the sermon in my mind, and I was just thinking around discipleship, and we've been married for 10 years now, we've known each other for 12 and a half, so there's not too often where Shell surprises me with something new. And I said to her, <laughs> every now and then the darkest secret just comes out, and I'm like, whoa! Um, no, we were just driving, and I said to her, Shell, liked <laughs> I've lost the front row, sorry you guys. <laughs> So basically, we're driving along, and I say to Shell, listen, I'm preaching on discipleship tomorrow. Like, tell me, remind me, like, who are the people who've most impacted your walk with Jesus? Who are the people who've discipled you? What was it that they did or said, you know? Um, and she tells me a bunch of people that I know. You know, her parents, she grew up in a Christian home. Her dad was a pastor. Her parents were missionaries. She says, my mom and dad. And then she mentions other people, you know, um, people I know well. She moved to Florida when she was six. She mentions Gary and Patsy Hall and Robin Meldu Ford and um, her friend Ginny and all of these people around the world as Shell's kind of moved who've impacted her life and her story. 
And then she mentions someone that I've never heard her mention before, which is strange. Like 12 and a half years, she's been holding out on me some of these good stories. But when Shell was 14, she moved back to Zimbabwe from England, and she was in Harare for two years, 14 to 16. Quite a significant period in anyone's life as you work out who you are, identity formation, all of these things. And she was at like a, a homeschooling situation. Uh, I hear that, dude. Come on. She was at this homeschooling situation in Harare with this teacher named Retta Curl. I'm like, that's such a unique name. How have you never mentioned Retta to me before? And Shell just starts to tell me how, as a 14-year-old in the school, having just moved, kind of processing life and all of these things, how this woman encouraged her and set her an example, and how the school was set up, and how there was prayer in the school, and all these different aspects in the school that helped her and encouraged her in the journey. And I thought to myself, goodness, Shell was 16 when she left. That's 17 years ago. 17 years ago that that happened. We're driving on the freeway here in San Diego, about as far away as you can be from Zimbabwe. And she's telling me this story, and I'm thinking, I'm sure Retta Curl, when she was 15 in her class, never for a second thought, this girl's going to live on the other side of the world, be involved in a church, following Jesus, talking about me and the influence I've had on her life. And I want to ask you today, who are the people that have influenced you the most? Who are the people that maybe 17 years ago they said something or did something or gave you something or set you an example or invited you into something that shaped you? Maybe in a small way, maybe in a huge way. But who are they? Because they've played something of a role in your story, either in life or in following Jesus. And I thought, what a privilege for Ridicule. She'll probably never know how much she impacted Shell when she was 15 years of age. And I was thinking for myself, I would love it if in 17 years, someone that I meet at this church, maybe it's one conversation we have together, but they're driving in like Kazakhstan or something like that and talking to their friend and just saying, there was this South African guy, his name was Grant something, and we had this conversation once, or he preached the sermon once, or we hung out this one time, and he said this thing, or he did this thing, or he helped me in this way, which really impacted my walk with Jesus. And I want to say to you, as you think about the people that have shaped and impacted your life, often the things that they did weren't big, but they were big for you. What are the things that they did that impacted you? Because as Jesus calls us to be his disciples and to make disciples, really that just means that we do the same things that those people did that impacted our lives for him. Who are you? What are the unique gifts and things that God has put inside of you? And how can you take what you've received and pass it on to someone else? You and I are called to be disciples, and we're called to make disciples. This isn't just for some of us. This is for all of us. This isn't just for the extroverts. This isn't just for the natural leaders or the more charismatically gifted members of this community. This isn't for those who feel confident and strong in their faith. This is for everyone who follows Jesus. There is a call to help other people follow him too. There's a passage which you might have thought I'd get to if you've been in church for a while. It's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Um, when I first started out uh, in a church in my kind of late teens, early 20s, it felt like this passage was preached every week. I'm sure that's not true, but it just felt like it. And it says this, All authority, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. It says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. These words kind of, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, really got inside me and impacted me and were huge to me. And they felt so exciting. We, we were part of this global church planning network, kind of like Restored. And there were all these opportunities to serve in different places and just felt like we were seeing God at work all over the place. And I remember going on my first trip to Lesotho, which is a country in South Africa, or inside South Africa, but it's a country inside South Africa. And we left on Friday morning, it was about a six or seven hour drive. And I remember getting to the border and going through and thinking to myself, I'm doing it. I'm living out the Great Commission. I'm going to the nations to make disciples. And we were there serving some churches and discipling some leaders and investing into some people in churches there. And it was fun. Masiri is like high up in the mountains in Lesotho. It was a different place to be with some of my friends, having fun for Jesus. It was a really special time. And for some of you in this room, as I speak about that, I think there might almost be this nudge inside of you. I mean, we've got Kyle and Kaya sitting in row four over there. Kai giving me a little one of these. Shaka, what is it called, guys? Oh, there we go, okay. Um, they'll be going back to North Africa in a few months to continue what God is doing through them, you know, in church planning. I actually don't know where Maria Horta is right now. Uh, not in a bad way. She's either in the air or she might have landed. Oh, she's at Shell's mom's house. Well, that's interesting. She's on the east coast of South Africa, but she's just been in Hyderabad, like preparing things for next year and just what God is doing there in India through that team that's kind of working towards making disciples and planting a church there. Nicole thinks it's hilarious. Um, but somehow she's at Shell's mom's house right now, hanging out with her before she comes home, which is really, really special. But, but there's almost this call for some of us to go. And I'm not saying that's for everyone, but I just want to ask you, as you follow Jesus, are you even open to that invitation? To him saying, I want you to relocate for me. I want you to move for me to another place to serve me in this way. Are you open to saying, Jesus, whatever you want with my life, it is yours, it's not mine. But I want to say a little bit more about that. That verse, that Great Commission, isn't actually just talking about mission trips or relocating to a different place. Because if it was, it would only be for very few people in a very narrow point in your life. You know, when you relocate or when you're on a short-term mission trip, that's a very small sliver of some people's lives. There's a little bit more that's going on there because this is for all of us in all of life. Now, I'm going to nerd out word-wise for about 60 seconds and then we'll carry on. Those of you who love words are going to love this. Those of you who don't, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> but the word go in that passage is actually a participle, not a verb. And a participle is a verb. Thank you. I appreciate that. A participle is a verb that is used and it's an adjective. So, for example, I am singing a song. Sing can be a verb, but in that context, singing is describing what I am doing. Does that make sense? So when we come and read the Great Commission, the verb there is not go. As if all of us should go to another place. The verb there is actually make. Make disciples. That's what's going on there. So maybe a, a helpful way for us to read that passage is as if it was saying to you, as you go, as you live your ordinary, everyday life, make disciples. And yes, you might be called to relocate to another part of the world. Today is Bianca's last Sunday with us, and we'll get into that in just a second, as God sends her to a different place. But as you go, make disciples. As you go to the gym, as you go to work, as you walk your neighborhood, as you go to a brewery or a coffee shop or the grocery store, 
as you go, help other people to follow Jesus in whatever way you can. I've been doing a lot of Ubering recently, and one of the things that has shocked me is by asking people very simple questions and listening what people have told me in their cars. I mean, I'm not going to get into it now, like some shocking deep dive stuff on a five to ten minute drive. Literally parked outside of Hardyhood the one day, praying for someone, confessing just the darkest possible thing that had been done to them. And I was able to invite them here and just share something of Jesus with them in the car. But it's amazing how, as you love, as you listen, as you ask, people are open to us sharing about Jesus with them in the everyday stuff of life. So I want to ask you, not just are you following Jesus, but are you helping others to follow Jesus too? Not just are you living as a disciple, but are you making disciples wherever God has placed you? Whatever your sphere of influence is, whoever the people are around you, are you making disciples? And who are they? Jesus' example to us of doing this was so simple. I think for some of us, this always feels like it's out of reach. This is something that's impossible to do. This is for five years down the line when I'm more mature and I'm feeling up to it. But then when we kind of do what I said earlier, when we adjust the focus on the camera and see what's going on in the background, the way Jesus did it and where he did it feels so normal and so natural. The way Jesus made disciples is he spent time with people. He set them an example while he was on the journey of following and serving God. He taught them, which does require a bit of work. He taught them the scriptures. He answered their questions. And then he helped them to do the stuff, to, to obey it, to live it out. That's really what he did. And when you look at where this happened, you know, very few of these were formal environments. If you read through the Gospels, if you read through the book of Acts, we see ministry happening around a meal at the beach on a boat while they fish around a barbecue, on a road trip or traveling to work, however you want to see it, in a field looking at some sheep or vines. So if that's your cup of tea, you'll love that. As people asked questions or asked how to pray, in the temple, a religious space, in the midst of conflict, in Acts uh, 10, I think it is, Peter even has a significant moment while he's on holiday at the beach. Isn't that incredible? Jesus discipled on the go in the everyday nature of things. And what he did with people is in those everyday moments, he linked the transcendent, eternal things of God with the everyday, ordinary parts of life. That's what he did with people. And he invested into these 12 men and 72, 100, we actually don't really know. There's just a lot. But he, he had this core of 12 that he invested into. And they, in turn, went out and carried on his work and changed the world. And for each one of us, yes, we are called to be disciples, but we are also called to make disciples and to carry on what he did. And it's not complicated. As I said, every one of us can do this. But at the same time, I don't want to say it's easy. This is hard, slow work. Making disciples, David Platt says, is not an easy process. It is trying, it is messy, it is slow, tedious, even painful at times. It is all these things because it is relational. Jesus has not given us an effortless step-by-step -step formula for impacting nations for his glory. He has given us people. And he has said, live for them, love them, serve them, and lead them. Lead them to follow me and lead them to lead others to follow me. And in the process, you will multiply the gospel to the ends of the earth. I see that. 
Okay. I think what I want to say, Restored Uptown, is this is what we are called to do. Being disciples is what we are called to be. Making disciples is what we are called to do. And my worst nightmare today would be that you're sitting there in your seat right now disqualifying yourself from doing this. That you're saying, well, that's not for me now because of this reason. You know, I'm too young. When I get a little bit older in my faith, when I learn a little bit more, because every single one of us who are following Jesus, wherever you are, you've got something to give to someone else. If you've been CBRing at the moment, if you've been doing like kind of the church devotional thing, on Friday, you're in Deuteronomy 32 and the book of Revelation. Revelation's wild, but it's beautiful. <laughs> you've got something to give from those scriptures to someone else. If you've been going through a really hard time and it feels like suffering and disappointment and discouragement, as God has been working in you in that time, you've got something to give to someone else about what God has done in that journey in your life. If you have been part of this church for years, there's a lot inside of you. And if you've just started to follow Jesus, then you've got a testimony of God's saving grace in your life. How the gospel has changed you how He drew you to Himself, and what He's saying to you now. Wherever you find yourself, there is something in you that you can give to someone who's one step behind. And then on top of that, every single one of us who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God not only empowers us to do the thing that we're talking about today, not only defeats sin in us so that we can grow and walk more and more into the fullness of what this means, but He helps us, and He shows us what to do, and He enables us to minister to other people. So I want to leave you with these two questions today. Are you a disciple of Jesus? And who are you discipling?